0: may it penetrate hearts and lives, and Father, may it change our hearts for the gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we sang that last song in the preceding song and thought about the glorious work that God has done in redeeming us, it is indeed an opportunity to reflect on how God chooses the least likely among us. He chooses the least likely according to us, to our culture, and to our world to redeem us, to set us aside, to give us and make us heirs of His kingdom and to use us in His service. And as we come this morning, we are going to be beginning a series of sermons called the least likely and as we begin this morning I want you to think have you ever had a time in your life where you were in a group of people and you were picked first maybe you haven't had that experience but maybe you've been in a group of people and as they as teams were being chosen up as people were being divided up perhaps you were picked last now let's just be honest, all of us, isn't it true, want to be picked first? We want for, for to be picked first and to be viewed as useful. And we want to see ourselves as valuable to the team and to the work of that team. As we look throughout our society, we see that often recruiting is viewed as a key tool, essential tool to develop a winning team. We see that within sports and college athletics and pro professional sports teams. We see that within business, uh, business uh, venues throughout our culture, we see constantly, even in the movies and even on television, we see in the titles of things like the Magnificent Seven and the A-Team that it is critical, critically important to have those who are best. In other words, you could say it like this, that it is of key importance, if you want to succeed, that you would have the right people in the right place at the right time. Do you agree with that? Of course we do. But the strange thing is, as we read Scripture, God takes the most unlikely of people and uses them anyway. What an amazing thing as we go through the pages of Scripture and see that indeed God not only not, not always takes the people who are the most likely pick. For indeed our obsession with choosing only the best for our teams causes us to be surprised when we read the pages of Scripture and see Him choosing those who seem to have nothing really to offer to His team. And yet God has constantly used the youngest. He's constantly used the outsider. He has constantly used those who are rejected by the culture, by the world to transform them, to change them, to redeem them, and to give them great and mighty works to do on His behalf. Indeed, the the Scriptures do not gloss over that those characters have errors. They have faults and failures, but it, it doesn't present them as if they are heroes who never make any mistakes, but it all Always shows and it always amazes me as the scriptures show to you and I as we read them that God would choose those who are fallen, those who who fail, and those who have flubs and mistakes throughout their life to change us, to transform us, and then to use us by His grace and for His glory. Isn't it amazing? That indeed God takes imperfect, ordinary people and cleans them up and dusts them off and uses them to accomplish extraordinary things. As we begin today and we launch into this series of the least likely, we're going to be looking at just that, how God uses the least likely people to make an impact upon our world and in the midst of our culture. And today we're going to begin by looking looking at the life of an ordinary little shepherd boy on the hills of Bethlehem the hills outside of Bethlehem named David and this is the man that God chooses to make king over Israel this is a man about whom God says he is a man after my own heart there is and perhaps you are familiar because there is no more written in the Bible about any other character than there is about David outside of Jesus Christ himself 66 chapters in the Old Testament, despite all 66 chapters are devoted to his life. Indeed, he has written numerous psalms that are recorded in the New Testament. We see 57 different references to King David. But he had an obscure beginning. He's the youngest son of Jesse. He's a shepherd boy on the hills outside of Bethlehem. When we find him, he is a bear killer. He is a lion killer. And then he goes on to become a giant slayer. He goes on to become a psalmist that writes writes beautiful music and words to worship and to praise the living God. He goes on to become the greatest king Israel has ever known. But at his start, he was obscure. At his start... He was outside of the mainstream. At his start, he was a nobody that nobody noticed except for God. A nobody that nobody noticed except for God. The fact is, man's criteria for, for making a choice about who is important and who is useful is quite different from God's. For God has a whole different set of guidelines for making His choice. While man tends to look on the outward appearance and base his decision on the outward and the obvious, God looks deeper. He looks inside of us. Man chooses based on one's talents, one's good looks, and one's high IQ. But God looks past and He looks at the heart. His choice is possessed of far more substance than the world's choice. For God's choice is based on what a person is and not just how they appear. And this is especially evident in this shepherd boy David and God's choice to choose him to be the king of Israel. As we begin this morning, let us ask ourselves and let us search out for ourselves what are the priorities and values that we set to establish character for ourselves and others? What is it that makes us useful? What is it that we think makes us useful in the hands of the living God? today. Let us get God's perspective and see that God's not just interested in the outer shell. He's interested in the inner self. He's not just interested in how we look, but actually who we are. So this morning, let us take our Bibles and look there in first Samuel chapter 16, verses one through 13. And let's read the story of this ordinary shepherd boy who is ordained of God, to be the king of all Israel. Let's stand now in honor the reading of this God's holy and inspired word. First Samuel 16, beginning in verse 1, reads as follows. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and beautiful with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon, him, upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Father, teach us that this morning. Father, show us. Father, that you are interested not in our outer shell, but in our inner self. And Father, teach us to rely on You, to live honestly and openly before You, to live in Your grace and by Your glory and for Your glory. And Father, we ask now, as always, Father, for those things that we don't know that You would teach us, for those things that we don't have that You would give us, for those things that we are not that You would make us. And Father, we pray now that You would speak, Lord, for Your servants are listening. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in this passage that God often chooses those that are the least likely by the world standards to accomplish great things for His kingdom. Indeed, it's not just our outer selves that impresses God and causes Him to want to use us. It's our inner selves that are actually of most importance to God. And so it's not outward appearance that God bases His choice upon. It is the inner self, the true nature and character of one. It is actually who we are and not what we look like that matters most to the living God. And when it comes to value, and it comes to being useful in God's kingdom, we must understand, God doesn't just want to see an outer shell, He wants to see an inner self that is open and receptive to Him. As we come this morning, I want us to begin by looking back and asking the question, why was God choosing a king? Why was it that God was choosing a king? Well, I want to lay a foundation so that you can clearly understand why God was choosing another king. You see, Israel already had a king. His name was King Saul. And he was reigning and ruling over all of Israel. But in order to really answer the question, why was God choosing another king? We have to go all the way back some years in Israel's history to first Samuel chapter eight. And there in the midst of first Samuel chapter eight, the people of Israel began complaining to God, crying out to God that they want a, a, a king just like all the other nations around them. In fact, one commentator says they have been on a long, slow drift from God. They're constantly moving away from the Lord. They are constantly turning their back on their savior, their sustainer that has delivered them out of Egypt and brought them into a new and promised land. They had gotten to the place where now they no longer wanted God as their ruler. They wanted a man as their ruler. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1-5, through it recounts the story something like this. When Samuel was old, he appointed his judges over Israel. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Doesn't sound like politicians of our day, does it? Never mind. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Notice those three reasons that they give. Hey Samuel, first of all, if you don't know it, we just want to tell you you're old and you're about to die. That's what they're saying. Second of all, Not only that, but your sons aren't like you. They aren't godly men. They aren't walking in the ways and the wisdom of God. They're different from you. They're They're taking bribes. They're perverting justice. They're evil and wicked. Thirdly, hey, listen, all the other nations have kings. Why can't we have one too? To which, of course, every parent in the room says, well, if all your other friends are jumping off the bridge, are you going to go jump off too? Do you see the change, the shift in mindset? They're no longer looking to God for salvation. They're no longer looking to God for protection and for provision. They are now looking to man. They are looking to ordinary men to be their leaders in God. And Samuel are not pleased with this. God is grieved by this. But finally he relents and says, Samuel, you know what? Give the people what they want. Let them have a king. Let them pick out a king. In First Samuel chapter 9, we see Saul, this Benjamite, set apart to serve as king over the people of Israel. Indeed, his main attraction to the people was his physical prowess, his magnificent physical specimen. He was a young man, a tall man. He had a good public image. He was rippling with muscles and a good fighter. He seemed to have the charisma to rally all the people. But all of these things that we think of as intangible in leadership within our culture and society indeed did not prove to make a good and godly leader did. That wasn't what God was looking for. That wasn't what the people needed. See, Saul began his reign as a humble servant who served God, who obeyed God and his commands. But it wasn't very long until his real character was revealed. While he appeared pleasing and significant to men, he he was always disobedient towards God in first Samuel chapter nine in first Samuel chapters nine through fifteen. Saul is presented as a proud man, a stubborn man, an impetuous man, an obstinate man, and a strong willed man These character flaws ultimately lead to his downfall because and because of his deliberate disregard for god 's word and his this disobedience to God's command God rejects him and takes the throne from Saul in fact in chapter 15 we find Saul's final act of disobedience to God it's an important one God, through Samuel, tells Saul, hey, I want you to go utterly destroy. Wipe out every person and possession of the Amalekites, including their king, King Agag. I want everything laid waste. Don't you bring back one thing to this place because this wicked and evil people need to be judged and you are going to be an example of my judgment against wickedness and evil within this world. And yet, Saul gets there in verses seven through nine. He starts to do the work, but then all of a sudden he changes course. And in verse eight, eight, he it says he captured Agag, the king, the Amalekites, and the of the Amalekites alive. How? Alive. But God had said to lay waste to everyone, to destroy all the people and all the possessions. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So they kept God's commands on one side, and they utterly disobeyed disobeyed and disregarded God's commands on the other side. This is the proverbial, I know what God said, but surely he didn't mean it. Moment. You ever had those? Where you're reading scripture and you say, well, I see what scripture says, but he just doesn't understand my situation. He doesn't understand where I am and what I'm going through right now. See, Saul made an excuse for himself, and in that he he caused himself to be disobedient. In that he raised the wrath of God. For in verses ten and eleven, God's response to his disobedience is sadness, is remorse over ever setting him up as king. In fact, it begin it is clear that God is not only sad about that, but He is actually going to follow through in what He has said in chapter thirteen, verse fourteen, when He said that I have rejected you as king. You're going to be. Rem- removed from this kingdom, Saul. And so here in chapter 15, verses 13 and then 19 and 20, Saul tries to justify himself. He tries to worm his way out of it by saying that the only reason he didn't destroy everything was because he wanted to give a good sacrifice to God. That sounds good, but it won't wash because what did God tell him to do to the people? Destroy them. Destroy the people. Destroy the possessions. Bring nothing back. Take nothing for yourself. And yet in the midst of that, Saul seeks his own glory and Saul wants to, wants to spare some things to bring back to celebrate his great victory. And so Samuel speaks with the voice of God there in verses 22 and 23 of 1 Samuel 15 and listen to his rebuke to Samuel. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and insubordination is as iniquity and adultery because you have rejected the word of the Lord he also rejected you from being king I want you to listen to me and listen to me carefully this morning if you think that your completion of ritualistic observances no matter what they are, no matter how noble they are, if you think that those ritualistic observances are earning you brownie points on God's scale, then hear me and hear me well. This morning, your worship is of no more value to God than Saul's worship was in his day. See, we must understand that if our if our lives are not being lived in obedience to God and to His Word, then it really doesn't matter if we say we love God and obey God and serve God, because to obey is better than to sacrifice. The sacrifices of Saul meant nothing before the just and holy and living God because of his d- disobedience, because of his de- direct defiance of his commands. Beloved, if we come to church every time the doors are open, if we come in here and we give 50% of our income to the living God, if we preach and teach and try to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, if we do all the things that look spiritual in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our church, in the midst of our community, in the midst of our world, and yet we do not turn our hearts and our lives over to the living God and offer Him every ounce of our obedience, it means nothing because our sacrifices are rejected because of our disobedience. Can't say one thing on the outer outside and do another on the inside. Our Creator demands first priority in everything for to obey is better than to sacrifice. I learned this uh, recently with my son. Because we're getting to the stage where he not only understands no, but then he tries to press the limits of no. You know what I'm talking about? And there's this thing we do that when he goes too far and there's direct defiance or disobedience, there is chastisement. For some of you, you may not like the word spanking. It's okay. There's correction that comes to my son. But he's learned that in the process of correction, there's three basic steps. First of all, we sit down and we discuss what he did wrong. The second thing is to actually follow through with chastisement because of what he has done wrong. But the third is a loving restoration where we wrap our arms around Him and say, we still love You. We love You. And give, you, give Him a kiss. You know, it's amazing. In just His short time, He has immediately figured out, well, I don't like the first two steps, so I'm just going to skip to the third step. So we pick Him up and we sit Him down and we begin to tell Him what He has done wrong and how He has defied us. And immediately, He wants to skip to the third step of wrapping His arms around us and hugging us and kissing us and getting off course so he won't have to experience step number two, chastisement. But I want you to tell you to obey is better than to sacrifice. See, we don't just want William to sacrifice, to wrap his arms around us and love us and hug us. We want him to actually obey what we've commanded him to do. And God is the same way with us. He doesn't want us to play games. He wants us to obey what He commands us to do. And so Saul's punishment is he is to lose his throne. Our punishment for disobedience and defiance of the living God is that we would lose our everlasting souls. Why was God looking for a king? Why was God choosing a king? He was choosing it because there was defiance and disobedience present in a hard-hearted man. And it is present within each of us as well. But secondly, let us see now how God chose his king. How God chose chose his king. And we see that in this passage. For Samuel is upset. He's mourning the failure of the first king, King Saul. And now he is, he is told by God, listen, you need to stop mourning over Saul because I have set up another. I have called out another. I have set apart and sanctified another. Consecrated another to come and to serve as king. And this time God is going to choose a man not on man's terms, but on his terms. And Samuel obeys God's direction to go to the family of Jesse to look over all these sons even though he's concerned about his safety he's concerned about his life hey listen Samuel pick up your stuff go to Bethlehem go to the house of Jesse I'm going to show you the next king and oh by the way trust me he doesn't even finish the story he doesn't tell him which son he doesn't tell him who's going to be there which son is going to be the next king he just says go and do this Samuel picks up and he goes First son of Jesse walks by and he says, man, surely this must be the guy. Looking at the outward appearance, he looked like the guy. He looked great. He looked astounding. He was ready to anoint him. But Paul says, eh, wrong answer. Now that's a loose paraphrase, but that's what he says. That's not him. This is not him. And then he shows us that indeed it's not the outward appearance in verse 7, but it is the inward appearance that matters most to God. Now in chapter 17, we are going to see why Eliab would have been rejected by God. Why would he have been rejected by God? Well, he was filled with jealousy. He was filled with cowardice. He wasn't a leader. He wasn't God's man. He wasn't willing to go and fight for the people. And he was very jealous of his younger brother who had been anointed king. So he didn't have the character that it demanded. But God says very clearly, the Lord does not look at the outer things like man looks at it. Because if you were to do it right now, if you were to anoint whoever you thought was right, Samuel, you'd choose the first one by. And I'm telling you, he's not the best for me Or for my people. I want you to understand this one essential and eternal uh, eternal principle. God does not see people as the world sees people. See, the world sees people as scenery or machinery. How can I use you and what can I get from you? But God says, you know what? I see you as my creation that I have loved. That I desire to redeem, to restore, and to bring into my kingdom to have fellowship with. Aren't you thankful God doesn't see people the way the world sees people? Samuel goes through all of Jesse's boys. And finally, he, he, it seems that even the father, Jesse, has forgotten about his son, David. Samuel says in verse 11, are there, or he says there in, uh, I think it's verse 9, uh, I'm sorry. The Lord, verse eleven. I was right. Are these all the children? It says, there, are these all the boys? Are these all the children? Well, no. There's one more, but you got to understand, he's insignificant. He's just a shepherd boy out on the hills. He's the youngest of all of them. Surely it's not him. I, well, listen, I want you, Jesse, to send for him immediately, and we're not going to sit down. Well, how, long, how far away was he? Hopefully he was very close. I don't know exactly how long they stood there because the Bible doesn't tell us, but we understand that they waited for David to come. And I love this picture. Can't you just imagine? All the other brothers are cleaned up. They're washed up they're consecrated they're ready for the sacrifice they're ready to see the next king of israel anointed and in walks david out of the shepherd fields think about that for a second he's still got the shepherd garb on and he still smells like those stinking sheep god says this is him this is my servant This is the one who is to be my king. The one who will be the next king. What an unexpected, unusual choice. We can't make this stuff up. We wouldn't write the story this way. But this is God's story. God is in the midst of this process choosing those who are the least likely. Those who don't appear to the world standards to be the obvious choice. He chooses not based on their outer shell but on their inner self. See, David would be anointed Israel's next king, but that would not have been the world's choice. He's too young. He's too inexperienced. He's never been into battle. He hasn't done anything to benefit the nation. What's he done except for stood out there on the hills outside of Bethlehem and watched sheep? What in the world are you thinking, God? But in the mind of God, he was not impressed by brawn or brains. He was impressed by a heart that was willing to serve him. In the mind of God, he saw it made made perfect, says that this young boy would be the king he might use. God shows us through choosing David that someone that evidently was unnoticed by man, even by his own father Jesse, was noticed and important to the living God. Indeed, God saw David's heart and he said, David, you're my man. You might not be anybody else's, but you're my man. Wouldn't it be wonderful, wouldn't it be great if we could look into the heart of the people that we come into contact with and really see who and what they are? Wouldn't it be great to be able to look at the mechanic and know whether he was telling you the truth or just knowing you to give you extra charges? Wouldn't it be wonderful to look at the insurance agent and know whether he was actually concerned about your life and your family's health and welfare or whether he was actually just selling you on this insurance, insurance quote because of the dollar signs that were dancing all around in his head? See, you and I can be tricked by people. We can be misled by people because we don't see and understand people's motivations and their hearts. But God never is. He doesn't look at the outward appearance, at the outward shell. He looks at the inner self and the true inner character of the individual to see if they are humble, if they are obedient, if they are receptive to what He commands. Why was God choosing a new king? He was choosing a new king because they had a hard heart defiant and disobedient king in the first place and now he was going to set up a man who was a man after his own heart and finally this morning we see what the character God desires in his servants the character that God desires in his servants now what was it that God saw in David's heart. Why did God make this election when all of His other brothers seemed to be a better fit for the bill? Well, when you study David's life, we see four key qualities that made David acceptable to God, that made David useful to God, that made David valuable to the living God so that He might do His work in the midst of this world. First of all, we see that David was a man who had a heart of dependence on God. Saul heard God's commands and immediately Saul began what? Scheming how he could do it better. Hey God, I know you told me to wipe them out, but I think I'll keep a little bit of this stuff for myself and for a sacrifice to you. He saw and understood God's commands, but he didn't receive them. David, on the other hand, listened to what God God said, and he never made it about his glory and his kingdom. He always made it about God. Listen to what Psalm 82 verses 6 through 8, what David says in that passage. God alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is a mighty, he is my mighty rock and my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your hearts to him. For God is our refuge. That's dependence. He never tried to accomplish anything by himself, he accomplished it through the work of the living God. Do you have a heart that depends upon God? A heart that depends upon God in the midst of your marriage and maybe even the messed up relationship that is there? Do you have a heart that depends upon God in the midst of your parenting? Do you have a heart that depends on God even when your money is funny and your work is non-existent? you have a heart that really believes and trusts what Jesus said? That, he, that God knows every sparrow that falls to, the, falls to the earth dead and you are worth more than any of these? Do you really believe Jesus when He says that God has even numbered the hairs on your head for some of you as far more than I have, but it's still a number that He knows? Do you believe that God is watching over and protecting you, providing for you in the midst of every situation? We need to have a heart that depends on God in every way. He needs to be seen as the only source of our life. Secondly, David not only had a a heart of dependence upon God, he had a heart of obedience for God. In Psalm 40, verse 8, he says, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your law is written on my heart. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I have what? I have hidden your word in your heart and my heart that I might not sin against thee. Indeed, he saw it as important to know, understand, and then obey what God says. For some of you who know the rest of David's life, you may say, but listen, he wasn't so obedient. I mean, he committed those horrible sins of adultery and, and murder. But listen to me. Even in the midst of those sins, we see a life that is not constantly trying to cover up and to sweep those things under the rug. We saw Saul in chapter 15 try to cover up his sin, sweep it under the rug, get rid of it and wash it away so that nobody would talk about it. But David says, listen, I'm uncovered, I'm undone. in Psalm 51, he pleads with God for forgiveness and says, oh God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. See, David knows his own self and he knows his own heart. And he truly desires to be obedient to God. And when he has sinned where he has been disobedient, he desires restoration. See, God isn't looking for people who are perfect. He's looking for people who are pure of heart and obedient to his commands. See, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to have problems. It's okay to have issues, but it's not okay to stay that way. We must be obedient to God's commands. Thirdly, we also see that David had the heart of a servant. In Psalm 89, verse 20, God says, I have found my servant David. I appointed him by pouring holy oil on him. Did you notice God says, David is whose servant? My servant. Servanthood is humility and practice. To be a servant means you don't really mind who gets the credit. You just do whatever you are supposed to do so that your superior looks good. To be a servant is not to care who gets the glory in the end, but to give all the glory to the one who is who is using you and moving you through the course of this life. After this anoint, after his anointing, we might be expect in our culture for David to go throw his business cards that said, shepherd boy in the city of Bethlehem, him in the trash. And he might then go and fill out a new business card that would say, hey, I'm no longer a shepherd boy. I'm the king of Israel in the courts of Jerusalem. But you know what David does? He doesn't do that. Where do we find him in verse in chapter 17? He's back in those hills around Bethlehem, shepherding the sheep of his father. He's a servant. God's time, God's place, I'll do what God tells me to. Until He moves that and opens those doors, I'm going to serve Him where I'm supposed to serve Him, whether that's in the hills of Bethlehem or in the courts of Jerusalem. David has a servant's heart. And fourthly, I want you to see, David had a heart of integrity. Psalm 78, verse 70, he, God chose David, His servant, from tending the sheep. He brought him to be the shepherd of His people. And David shepherded them with the integrity of heart. You know what integrity is? Integrity is is who you are when no one else is watching. Integrity is what you do when no one else is looking. Integrity is who you are and where you go and what you do when nobody you know is around. Integrity is what you do at your job when your boss isn't present. Integrity is what you say in the midst of your golf foursome when you don't know that the fourth guy who has joined you this week is a preacher. Integrity. It's who we are when no one else is looking. David is said to have been a person of integrity, a man of integrity, a man who had a heart of dependence, a heart of obedience, a heart of servanthood, a heart of integrity. Let me ask you this morning, would God say that about you or I? See, David was a nobody that nobody noticed. Not even his own father. But God in heaven saw his heart, knew he could trust him and he chose to make this the man who would be the leader of Israel. He was the least likely to everyone in his culture, but God knew him because God doesn't look at the surface. He looks at the man. He doesn't look at the outer shell. He looks at the inner self. And God often chooses those who seem to be the least likely to the world to clean them up, to wash them off, and then to do great and mighty things through. What does God see in you this morning? Can the great great physician Jesus Christ truly look into your heart and say, you know what? I I see a heart there that is dependent upon me. I see a heart there that is obedient to me. I see a heart there that has a heart for service. I see a heart there that is a heart that walks with integrity before me. I pray that when God examines my heart, He sees the heart of Jesus Christ in me. Father, as we come to a close of the service this morning, I pray that you would move us to respond to this message. To see ourselves, to see our sin, to see our shortcomings. But to realize that, Father, you use the least likely to do the greatest works in your kingdom. Father, may you come this morning. May you take us and use us, transform us by your grace and for your glory to live lives of radical transformation that would touch this community and this world for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us have hearts of dependence upon You. Lord, let us have hearts of obedience. Let us have hearts of servanthood. Let us have hearts, Father, of integrity. Father, may You come and deal with us now and lead us to live in the power of Your strength so that we might be strong and faithful as we go out to spread Your message Father, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our hymn of invitation.